2: This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between.
3: Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy filled marriage and family.
2: For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.
4: This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
5: But we are apt to wander too much, always looking at the splinter in our neighbor's eye, rather
3: than at the beam in our own. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon is coming to you from George Whitfield. It was preached sometime in the late 1760s. Joel, it's, it's funny.
4: I don't think I've ever asked myself the question, how am I supposed to listen to a sermon? And yet when I saw this sermon, I was surprised to realize that after listening to preaching a good portion of my life and working on all these sermons for Revive Thoughts, I've never realized I am missing some areas of how to do it. I am hopeful that for the listener, you'll be able to apply uh, what you're listening to today to your life pretty much immediately. And also there's a part that he goes into about how to treat your preacher Uh, which I really think is relevant to all of us today. Uh, I think we could all treat our preachers and pastors with probably more respect and a little bit less of a critical eye. Now, this sermon is by George Whitfield, and we've done an episode on him earlier in the show. It's an almost Christian, and I really highly recommend uh, going back and listening to that episode if you haven't listened to it before. Whitfield is this great preacher, and we talk about how parts of his life would not really align with what we'd like to see in a Christian today. Yeah, definitely. Uh, lastly we have a very exciting episode involving Whitfield actually coming up in the future of Revived Thoughts here in the next couple months Uh, but I'm not going to spoil it just know there's something really I'm I'm really excited about it it's coming this summer all
3: right yeah as Troy mentioned we do have a previous episode that kind of covers uh Whitfield's backstory and some controversies in his life so we're going to be kind of touching on a little bit of that today and also touching on some other parts of his life. But as a recap, he was born in 1714 and his father died when he was two years old. His family ran an inn, like a a hotel. Whitfield wanted to be an actor and that's something we kind of focused on during the the previous episode is his, his desire for drama. He would get caught skipping school to to prepare and practice for different performances and he would love to read plays that was his go to literature his go to material is reading through plays his family was very poor and when he was 15 he had to quit school to help his mother run the tavern that was a part of the inn there and for a year and a half, he washed dishes and waited tables, and he served people. Troy, have you ever? Were you ever a waiter? In never your life? a
4: waiter. I was a pizza delivery driver and a barista. Does at that Starbucks. count?
3: I don't know. I don't waiter like so. is uh, one of America's most popular jobs. That like any, if he ran and given person, mm-hmm. there's the li- high likelihood that they were a waiter. They shared that job in common. That, more that than actually, yeah, else. I see that definitely makes yeah. sense. I also never, never waited tables. Although I would have over many other.
4: Yeah. Jobs. I had some yeah. door knocking jobs that I would have
3: rather been waiting. I guess so. That's why we're not Whitfield. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, you waited tables for a year and a half, and he would. He would. He, we have this autobiography from him, so we can see his writings as far as what he was thinking during all these times. And he considered this part kind of a spiritually dark era of his life. He was r- religious outwardly, but he didn't feel it, it was. It was all show. He he definitely would fall back into. Uh, hanging out with the wrong crowds and telling filthy jokes and not living that Christ like life.
4: At seventeen, his mother gave up on the inn and just retired. And an old school friend, an old school friend of Whitfield's, remembered him and encouraged him. Said, "You, you know, you should really think about going to college, going to Oxford." Uh, Whitfield had always been the student that had been given really hard speeches to memorize. He had done a really good job. Uh, he had done big performances, and I, I think that's probably what that old student was remembering. Like, I remember you. You were really talented. It takes some work, but he ends up getting into uh, Oxford, Pembroke College, Oxford. And we talked about this on the earlier show, but he he is at the lowest rung of Oxford. He's called a servitor. And the servitor, they served wealthy students as a servant. Uh, and in their free time, they were allowed to take classes and study. This fit him really well because he had already been kind of a barkeep for a tavern. So he, he had that experience. And for about a year and a half, he was doing that at the end. And now he's doing that at the school. And this is kind of a strange place to stop, but I always this is what I think about. In that moment, no one knew the guy currently carrying their books would someday be this mind-bogglingly famous preacher and one of the most influential Christians of the 1700s. And what must that have been like when they kind of someday figured out, like some of those people had to have been alive and were like, I'm going to go see George Woodfield. Isn't that the guy who used to carry my books? Isn't that the guy who would make me my tea when I was studying? I wow, we ended up in different places. Like, I just think about that. And it's kind of humbling because what people in our life right now are maybe doing something obscure. Maybe they're working that side job as a waiter. They're just on the lowest rung of society. And we don't know it's now, but 20 years from now, you know, you would pay big money to see them in concert or see them uh, give a conference speech or something like that. It's just funny to think about how people end up, I guess.
3: In his second year there at Oxford, he joined what would be famously called the Holy Club. Troy, do you know who was in the Holy Club? I do, but I'm probably the wrong person to ask that. John Wesley and Charles Wesley. Gotcha. And and George Whitefield, obviously. The the, the three of them. (laughs) I think he was there too. Yeah, yeah. We we've talked about the Holy Club on several episodes of uh, of Revived Thoughts. Um, these three guys were that cohort, right? You have yeah. that that bond of brothers that are on fire for Jesus. And George Whitfield really describes this as a, kind of a a new birth in his life and in his passion and really understanding and thriving after the Bible. John and his brother Charles Wesley were the main leaders in an approach that is is more systematic, right? It's this idea that every moment should be used to do something for God, whether it's studying your Bible or reading books or serving the poor, preaching to others. Every single minute should be dedicated to God in some way. And this way of thinking became really big in George Whitfield's life. And I mean, almost you can see how a systematic way of thinking like this could almost kind of be somewhat damaging, almost go a little bit too far. And that's kind of what we see a little bit in his life to where you become really legalistic, right? Yeah. If you have a system for everything and if someone's not abiding by that system, they're wasting their time. So you have a very legalistic view on the world. Uh, we can definitely see how that would not encourage good relationships with the people around you.
4: I think that happens to, and maybe I'll speak out. answer. It happened to me at different points in my life where I got a little bit too into, I have to do this, this, and this and it becomes less about doing it for the love of God and less about I'm doing this in joy for God, but I'm doing this because I feel like I have to. And I I, I can relate to this thing that he went through. He talks about this really dark moment and actually John Wesley mentions it at one point too. He said he would eat the worst food, he would fast twice a week, he would wear the worst clothes and pretty much reject everything material. And he thought this was creating a really spiritual heart in him, but he constantly was wrestling with this whole thing too. And at one point, some experienced Christians started working with him, and and they started reading books together, and he, he began to kind of taste Christian liberty again and realized the perfection he was reaching for was actually through works, and he couldn't do it. This kind of changed him again. He had this overhaul in his life he had been wrestling with, and he he said that he turned to Scripture for months, just begging God to show him like what he was missing and how he could do it better. And when he got out of this system, okay, I'm not gonna be a legalist. I'm gonna still be all on fire for God, but I'm not gonna try to make it about works. He said he really never went back down that road again. He didn't want to go back down that road again. Um, if we skip forward just a little bit in time, he decided he wanted to be a missionary to Georgia. He wanted to go to Georgia and tell the people there about the gospel. And it's kind of funny, in our mind, you know. we think of Georgia as a part of America, as part of the Bible Belt and all that. But in those days, that was a penal colony, and it was just this frontier area where people were, criminals were sent. It was not really a Christian part of the United Kingdom at that point, really. So he decides he's gonna go there, but the ship that he's supposed to take out to harbor is delayed, and it's delayed by at least a month or two. And so during that time, he starts to just kind of do these speaking engagements around London. He had always been a decent speaker But he said something was different. It was like the room was electrified. People were just flocking to him, crowded rooms. People couldn't get in. Outside, they're waiting to hear him. The place is just completely packed and they're hanging on his every word. One famous actor said he was so entrancing on stage, so dramatic in his performance and the way he was bringing uh, the gospel that he said he would just give a huge sum of money just to say the word, oh, the same way that Whitfield was saying it when he would say things like, oh, Lord, and stuff like that. He's like, oh, just for just that, oh, I would pay any amount of money to be able to speak like that.
3: Yeah, so that's his time in London. So when he gets to Georgia, he he very quickly, I mean he's only there for 3 months, but he very quickly becomes somewhat of a celebrity, somewhat of a superstar because he's just so enticing, so interesting to listen to, and he gets a, a lot of work done. He begins work on the Bethesda Orphanage, which would go on to outlive him. He, he noticed this because there's so many orphans in Savannah. Troy mentioned that it's a penal colony. So all of these debtors get sent there when they can't pay their debts and they're forced into hard labor and many of them die because they're not equipped or trained to do that labor. And their families that probably move down there with them uh, are orphaned, essentially. They're, the kids are orphaned. And so there's just a lot of kids down there that don't have parents around anymore, don't have a father. George Whitfield built an orphanage to bring those kids into to house them.
4: Uh, One last detail we'll get to, and there's really so much to Whitfield. If you listen to the show, it seems like most speakers in the 1700s can kind of trace a lineage back to him somewhere. And it makes sense. There are some people who believe that in the 18,000 sermons he preached in the Eight Trips to America, there is this theory that he preached to almost every single American man, woman, and child during that time. But this last detail is that Whitfield experienced pushback. We always hear about these guys, they're larger than life and it just seems like everything's going their way, but that actually was not true. When Whitfield returned to America after this very first trip to Georgia, the doors were closed. Churches did not like that before, he had been kind of calling out the clergy and they really did not like that he was saying people needed to get baptized again after already being baptized as kids or infants. And so when he comes back and he is Anglican, uh, there's this moment where Whitfield couldn't find a place to preach. No church was gonna let him in with his audience. The people were wanting to hear from him, but the churches did not want to be a part of it, so he asked a few people what they thought about open-air preaching, and they said it was nonsense, that it wouldn't work in a city, that was the kind of thing that you did in the olden days, but it wasn't really something people were doing anymore. But Whitfield decided to, he was going to give it a try anyway. He grabbed some scaffolding, he put it together, and and started to tell people the Word of God, and. Some say it was kind of in the middle of the market. Others say it was just on a hill near a town. But whatever it was, at first, about 100 people kind of came and heard. And people were kind of going out and telling others, like, you got to hear this guy. He's out here preaching on a hill or he's in the market just preaching to people. The next day, he tried it again, and there were many more people waiting to hear him preach. And by the end of the week, several thousand were there listening to this guy just preaching on, you know, some crates or something, basically. This is just one of those amazing moments where it just doesn't seem like Whitfield can be stopped. I love this moment, actually. Um, Because for me, I would have called it in. God, it just seems like, you know, I want to do something for you, but the doors are all shut. I don't know what to do. And that would have been, you know, my moment where I'd have been like, God, I guess it's in your hands. Maybe I'm not meant to do this. I don't know. But he doesn't stop. And this guy loved preaching so much. And he loved telling the gospel. He wasn't going to let the lack of churches stop him. And this is the guy you're about to hear tell you how you should listen to sermons. And I think as an expert who never relented in getting the gospel to people, he, he him telling us how it is we're supposed to listen to them is something we need to listen to.
5: Luke 8.18 Take care, therefore, how you listen. The occasion of our Lord's giving us this warning was this perceiving that many people were gathered together to hear Him out of every city, and knowing for He is God, and He knows all things, for He knew that many of them would be hearers only, and not doers of the word, He spoke to them by a parable of a sower that went out to sow his seed. And he plainly explained it in his parable that few of them would truly receive any saving benefit from his teaching or bring forth fruit. Although the application should be plain and obvious, his disciples were yet unenlightened in any great degree by the Holy Spirit and were unable to see into the hidden mysteries of the kingdom of God. Yet they dealt with our Savior as people ought to deal with their ministries, and discussed with him privately about the meaning of what he had taught them in public. They had a sincere desire of doing their duty, and asked him for an interpretation of the parable. Our blessed Lord, as he always was willing to instruct those that were teachable, herein setting his ministers an example to be courteous and accessible, freely told them the significance. This was to make them more cautious and more attentive to his doctrine for the future. He tells them that they were specially chosen to be the light of the world and were going to proclaim on the housetop whatever he told them in secret. And as their understanding, the knowledge already given to them, was the only channel upon which more would be given to them. It therefore highly concerned them to take care how they listened. From the context, it appears that the words were primarily spoken to the apostles themselves. But I'm afraid to say, out of those many thousands that flock to hear sermons, few are actually influenced by them. I can't help but think that it is necessary to remind you of the warning given by our Lord to his disciples, and to exhort you with the utmost earnestness, and to take care of how you listen. This is the design of my sermon. First, I will show that everyone should take all opportunities to listen to sermons. And secondly, I will lay down some warnings and directions in order to benefit you as you listen to them. First. I will show that everyone should take care of all opportunities to listen to sermons. That there have always been particular people set apart by God to instruct and exhort His people to practice what He should require of them. It is evident from many passages of Scripture. St. Jude tells us that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied or preached Concerning the Lord's coming, and brought ten thousand of his saints to judgment. And Noah, who lived not long after, is declared by Saint Peter a preacher of righteousness. And though in all the space between the flood and in giving the law we hear of very few preachers, yet we may reasonably conclude that God never left himself without a witness, but at various times, in a diversity, of ways he spoke to our fathers by the patriarchs and the prophets but however it was before we are assured that after the delivery of the law god constantly separated to himself a certain order of men to preach to as well as pray for his people and though the Jews were frequently led into captivity and for their sins scattered abroad on the face of the earth, yet he never completely gave up his church, but still kept up a remnant of prophets and preachers. Those like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, and others were there to reprove, instruct, and call them to repentance. So it was under the law Yet how much infinitely better does the church have it through the gospel for when Jesus Christ had through the eternal spirit offered himself as a perfect and sufficient sacrifice he gave commission to his apostles and in them to all succeeding ministers to go and preach his gospel to every creature. He promised to be with them, to guide, assist, strengthen, and comfort them always, even to the end of the world." But if it is the duty of ministers to preach, and woe be to them if they do not preach the gospel, for a burden is laid upon them, no doubt the people are obligated to listen to them, for otherwise what purpose are ministers sent? And how can we avoid admiring the love and tender care which our dear Redeemer has expressed for his spouse the church? Or because he could not always be with us in person, on account that it was better that he should go away, he did not want to leave us comfortless. He taught a sufficient number of pastors and teachers to start the church, and after that he continues to send down the Holy Ghost so that he can furnish them and their successors with the proper gifts for the work of the ministry for perfecting the saints and for the edifying of his body in love. Oh, how senseless are these people of the unspeakable gift who spit on the spirit of grace and crucify the son afresh by willfully refusing to attend to such great a means of salvation. How dreadful will the end of such lives be. How uh, aggravating. That fight should come into the world that the glad tidings of salvation should be so very frequently proclaimed in this large city, and yet so many should hate the spiritual bread? How much more tolerable will it be for Tyre and Sidon, for Sodom and Gomorrah, than for such sinners? But that men had never heard of a Savior being born. Than after they have heard, not to give heed to the ministry of those who are employed as his ambassadors and who are here to transact affairs between God and their souls. We may be in an unclear way and without a spirit of prophecy. Imagine the deplorable end of such men. We can picture them cast into hell. And lifting up their eyes and torment and crying out how often did our ministers try to gather us but we would not oh that we had known in our day that these things that belong to our everlasting peace but now they are forever hidden from our eyes so wretched and so inconceivably miserable will they be that make a mockery of the public preaching of the gospel? But I'll take it for granted that there are few, if any, of this unhappy camp present who would think it worth their while to tread the courts of the Lord's house. So I pass to my next point. Secondly, to lay down some caution and directions in order to benefit you as you listen to this sermon. And here, if we reflect on what has been already delivered, and remember that preaching is an ordinance of God by Jesus Christ for promoting His kingdom among men, you cannot be offended if I first direct you to come to hear them not out of curiosity, but from a sincere desire to know and do your duty. Formality and hypocrisy in any religious exercise is an abomination to the Lord, and to enter his house merely to have our ears entertained and not your hearts reformed must certainly be highly displeasing to the Most High God and unprofitable to ourselves. Here is why so many remain unconverted and unaffected with the most evangelical preaching. It is so that like St. Paul's companions, before his conversion, they only hear the preacher's voice with their outward ears, but do not experience the power of the inwardly in their hearts. Or like ground near Gideon's fleece, they remain untouched. While others who came to be fed with sincere milk of the word, like the fleece itself, are watered by the dew of God's heavenly blessing, and they grow. Flee, my brethren, flee curiosity, and instead prepare your hearts to receive with meekness the engrafted word. Then it will become a means from God to quicken, build up, purify, and save your souls. If an earthly king issued a royal proclamation on not performing some duty, and the life or death of his subjects was depending on following this proclamation, how careful would it be to hear what those conditions were? And yet, will we not pay the same respect to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and lend an attentive ear to his ministers when they are declaring how our pardon peace and happiness may be secured when god descended on mount sinai in a frightening marvelous majesty to give his people the law how attentive were they to his servant moses and if they were so earnest to hear the thunderings and the threatenings of the law Will we not be as interested to hear from the ministers of Christ with the glad tidings of the gospel? While Christ was here on earth, it is said that the people hung upon him to hear the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And if we looked on ministers as we ought to, as those sent by Jesus Christ, we should cling to them, to hear their words also. Besides, the sacred truth that the gospel ministers deliver are not dry, pointless lectures or moral philosophy intended only to amuse us for a while. No, they are great mysteries of godliness which we are bound studiously to take to our hearts. And it is through our negligence when we either do not understand them or by Any other means, let them slip from our memory. But how careless are those who, instead of clinging to the preacher to hear him, doze or sleep while he is speaking to them from God. Unhappy men, can't they keep watch with our blessed Lord one hour? What? Didn't they read how Eutychus fell down as he was sleeping? When St. Paul continued his discourse till midnight, and he died. But to return, though you may prepare your hearts, and be attentive while the sermons are delivered, yet this will not profit you unless you observe a third direction. Do not entertain any criticism against the minister. For even if the preacher could speak with the tongue of angels, But his audience was prejudiced against him Then he would only sound like a sounding brass Or a tinkling cymbal That was the reason why Jesus Christ himself The eternal word could not do many mighty works Or even preach to any great effect among those in his own country For they were offended at him And this was Jesus, God incarnate who will bow the heavens. He will come down speaking as no man has ever spoken. But if we are prejudiced against him, as the Jews were, we then harden our hearts as the Jews did theirs. Take heed, my brethren, and beware of entertaining any dislike against those whom the Holy Ghost has made overseers over you. Consider that the clergy are men who have passion like yourselves, and though we may even hear a person teaching others to do what he himself has not learned to do, but that is not sufficient reason for rejecting his teaching. For ministers speak not in their own, but in Christ's name. And we know that Jesus commanded the people to do whatever the scribes and Pharisees should say to them. Fourthly, as you should not be prejudiced against, so you should be careful not to depend too much on a preacher, or think more highly of him than you ought to think, for though this be an extreme position that people seldom run into, yet preferring one teacher in opposition to another has often been an ill consequence to the church of God. It was a fault which the great apostle of the Gentiles condemned the Corinthians, for where one said, I am of Paul, another, I am of Apollos, aren't you being carnal, asked Paul, for who is Paul and who is Apollos, but instruments in God's hand by whom you believed. And are not ministers sent to be ministering ambassadors to those who will be heirs of salvation? And are they not all therefore greatly to be honored for their work's sake? The apostle, it is true, commands us to pay double honor to those who labor in the word and doctrine, but then to prefer one minister at the expense of another, perhaps to such degree as when we have actually entered a church to leave again because you prefer to minister, does not preach, is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Not to mention that popularity and applause cannot be exceedingly dangerous, even to the rightly informed mind, and it must necessarily fill any thinking man with a holy jealousy or he might take that honor to himself, which is due only to God. For God alone qualifies him for his ministerial labors, and from him alone every good and perfect gift comes. A fifth direction I would recommend is to make a special application of everything that is delivered to your own hearts. When our Savior was speaking at the Last Supper with his beloved disciples, and foretold that one of them should betray him. Each of them immediately applied it to their own hearts and said, Lord, is it I? And if only when preachers are dissuading people from their sins or persuading them to the, a duty, instead of telling themselves this was designed against so, and so over there, turned their thoughts inwardly and asked, Lord, is it I? How much more beneficial should we be finding in our sermons to be that we should ask us this question? Lord, is it I? But we are apt to wander too much, always looking at the splinter in our neighbor's eye rather than at the beam in our own. The sixth and last direction, if you wish to receive a blessing from the Lord, then when you hear his word preached, Pray to him, both before, in, and after every sermon. Pray to imbue the minister with power to speak and to grant you a will and an ability to put it into practice. What he will show from the book of God to be your duty. This would be an excellent way to ensure that the word will be preached powerfully and to enlightening and Inflaming of your hearts And without this All the other means before prescribed Will be in vain No doubt It was the consideration that made St. Paul so earnestly entreat His beloved Ephesians To intercede with him from God Praying always With all manner of prayer And supplication in the spirit And for me also That I may open my mouth with boldness to make known the mysteries of the gospel. And if so, great an apostle as St. Paul needed the prayers of his people, how much more do those ministers who have only the ordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit? Besides, this would be a good proof that you sincerely desired to do as well as to know the will of God, and it would highly profit both minister and people For God, through your prayers, will give them a double portion of the Holy Spirit, and they will be enabled to instruct you more fully in the things which concern the kingdom of God. And oh, that all who hear me this day would seriously apply their hearts to practice what has now been told to them. Ministers would see Satan, like lightning, fall from heaven. And people would find the word preached sharper than any two-edged sword. And mightily, through God, he'd be pulling down all the devil's strongholds. The Holy Ghost would then fall on all those that hear the word. Just as when St. Peter preached the gospel of Christ who have free course and would run swiftly. And thousands again would be converted by a sermon. For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has promised to be with his ministers always, even to the ends of the world. And the reason why we do not receive larger displays of the blessed Spirit of God is not because our all powerful Redeemer's hand is shortened. But because we do not expect them and confine them to primitive times It does indeed sometimes happen That God to magnify his free grace in Christ Jesus Is found by them that did not seek him A notorious sinner is forcibly worked upon by the public sermon And plucked as a firebrand out of the fire But this is not God's ordinary way of acting no, in general, he only visits those with the power of his word, who humbly wait to know what he would have them do, and sends unqualified hearers not only empty, but hardened away. Take care, therefore, you careless, curious professors. If any are present, watch how you hear. Remember that whether we think of it or not, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Here, ministers must give a strict account of the doctrine they are delivered, and you will give a strict one, too, on how you have improved under it. And good God, how will you be able to stand at all the bar of an angry, sin-avenging judge and see so many sermons, you have despised so many ministers who longed and labored for salvation of your precious immortal souls brought out as so many swift witness against you? Will it be sufficient then, you think, to say that you went to hear them only out of curiosity and to pass away an idle hour or to admire the oratory or ridicule the simplicity of the preacher. No. God will then let you know that you ought to have come for better reasons than this. After every sermon has been put down on your account, you must then be justly punished for not improving from them. But fear not, little flock. The meekness to receive God's word and bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness, for it will not be like this with you. No, you will be the ministers of joy and their crown of rejoicing in the day of the Lord Jesus. And they will present you in holy triumph, faultless and unblameable, to our common Redeemer, saying, Behold us, O Lord, and the children which you have given us. But still take care how you listen. For upon your improving the grace you have, more will be given, and you will have an abundance. He is faithful that promised, who will also do it. Not God from out of Zion will so bless you that every sermon you hear will communicate to you a fresh supply of spiritual knowledge. The word of God will dwell in you richly. You will go from strength to strength. And one degree of grace to another, until being grown up to be perfect men in Christ Jesus, and filled with all the fullness of God, you will be translated by death to see him as he is, and to sing praises before his throne with angels and archangels, cherubim and seraphim, and the general assembly of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
4: There's a lot in this sermon that stood out to me. Uh, Remembering to pray before the sermon. I mean, how few of us actually go to church and we stop and we go, God, teach me something in church today. I'm really excited to hear the sermon uh but the part that really got out to me the most was just the grace he asked people to give preachers so many of us are so quick to judge a sermon or judge a preacher and say well you know it wasn't very good i didn't find it entertaining i didn't like this i didn't like that or so many of us are are gonna say you know oh well that you know the pastor said don't do this but i know he does that he's overweight he's doing i know he's got sins right i love the way Whitfield just doesn't let you get that out he just kind of says the truth is the truth Preachers are being used by God. This whole thing is a remarkable thing where you're getting to hear the truth of God spoken to you. So quit looking for excuses not to apply it to your life. Even if the preacher himself isn't perfectly applying it to his life, that doesn't mean you have the right to not listen to it and to take it seriously. And I love that because if I'm honest, I think a lot of us really struggle with kind of judging the preacher and Whitfield saying it's got to stop.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Scott Woodruff. Scott is from Ohio. He was in the army as an infantryman and is married with two daughters. He is currently in seminary at Grand Canyon University and is pursuing a master's in divinity. He's looking forward to either serving in full-time ministry or a career in biblical counseling.
4: Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. We hope it helps you when it comes to listening to sermons in the future. If you enjoy listening to sermons, make sure you are subscribed to Revive Thoughts and you have uh, make sure you're telling other people about this show so they can also learn how to listen to sermons and listen to our back catalog of sermons. We have another episode by Whitfield and we have other episodes by many other great preachers from the past. And also, we have a new show, Revive Devos, that takes devotionals from famous preachers and theologians, puts them down to two or three minutes, records them, and sends them out to you. One episode comes out every single day with seven different speakers we choose from. Jonathan Edwards, D.L. Moody, Oswald Chambers, uh, Richard Baxter, really great speakers of their time. And we're bringing them back to you, back to life for you to have this opportunity to listen to them every single day. So if you're not subscribed to that new show we put out, we highly recommend that you do so.
3: Yeah, Revive devos is a short. It's, it's, it's two to three minutes. So it's just a perfect little bite-sized pockets of information to start your day off with. I listen to it usually when I
4: first hop in the car in the morning, I'm on my way to work. I just kind of flip it on. That's kind of the first thing I listen to when I'm out there doing stuff.
3: Yeah, you can find it by searching Revive Devos in your podcast app. This is Troy and Joel and this is Revive Thoughts.
2: This episode is brought to you by the In Between podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith and everything in between.
3: On the In Between podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world,
2: ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse,
3: how to not hate your in-laws,
2: ways to save money for your next vacation,
3: and how to use the Enneagram in your relationships.
2: Join us, Daniel
3: and Christina M,
2: as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected and joy-filled marriage and family.